Welcome to the Frontline Response to Health and Homelessness podcast series. This series is based on the articles published in the March 2020 edition of Parity magazine. It gives voice to those with lived experience of homelessness, those working on the front line, and those that support the sector in delivering services to people who are homeless. My name is Dan Fleming, and I'm delighted to introduce our host, John Willis, who leads the inclusive health team for St. Vincent's Health Australia. John will introduce our guest in just a moment. As we're recording during the COVID-19 pandemic, John and our guest will be with us by phone for this episode. John Willis, over to you. Thanks, Dan. Great to welcome Amanda Stafford to the program. Really good to chat to you today, Amanda. You're uh, the clinical lead at the Royal Perth Hospital homeless team in Western Australia, normally, um, but uh, you're doing some other things during COVID-19 by the sounds of it, but how are you going today? I'm uh, going well. Uh, yet we, I am at the moment, I'm an EED consultant by training, so I'm working full-time in our emergency department during the, uh, the COVID crisis. Uh, but normally I work half-time with the homeless team at Royal Perth Hospital, so uh, I'll be drawing my experience from there. Fantastic. Well, thanks for agreeing to be part of this podcast series. So, look, you've been involved in an innovative response to homeless health in Australia, particularly from the hospital's perspective, and many of us, me included, from the eastern states have been really impressed about what you've been doing. So, well done to you and the team over there. That's been some wonderful work that's leading some areas of work. But in this particular article in Parity, you're focused on treating those with a dual diagnosis. So, ensuring that if, if you're someone who has a mental health issue, Alongside an alcohol and drug issue, you don't fall through the cracks and you get the treatment support you need. So could you, to start us off, could you tell us about this link between homelessness and dual diagnosis? So it's a it's really a chicken and egg thing um, about whether uh, about between dual diagnosis and homelessness. So on the one hand, if you have a severe mental illness or you have a severe substance use. Uh, issue, you're much more at risk of becoming homeless because it breaks down the uh, the support networks, uh, the links to uh, of often to treatment teams, and just that sort of safety net that keeps people in housing is often eroded by having uh, either of those things. The other problem is that once you are homeless, so people who may not have had a drug and alcohol or mental health issue or had one that was reasonably well controlled, once they become homeless, life is pretty desperate. And pretty much everybody who becomes homeless will have certainly a mental health issue. Um, I think on the SBS series, Filthy Rich and Homeless, one of the um, participants said, if you didn't have a mental health issue before you ended up on the streets, you certainly will have once you're there. And mm. probably most people will, uh, who are on the streets will use substances, either starting to, and that uh, starting to, or the uh, their substance use worsens, and that's partly to simply to provide some comfort, some escape from the the horrors of uh, of what's happening on the street. And as people become traumatised by what happens, they will often then become particularly heavy users. Or it may actually be quite a, an adaptive use of it, such as women who use methamphetamine so that they can stay awake at night and keep safe. 
Yeah. I remember reading that. That's, that's a very interesting point, how to keep safe, staying awake at night. Now, your, your Homeless Outreach Dual Diagnosis Team, otherwise known as HODS, love that. Um, I thought it could have been HOODS, but it didn't quite work, but HODS. Um, is, it, is it key to responding to this issue? And you've written about this in your article. So can you tell our listeners a little bit how this team operates? So the, the HODS team uh, basically is, at its core, is a psychiatrist and uh, a mental health nurse and both of them have experience in both alcohol and drug as well as obviously mental health. What's really key is that they're embedded within a specialist homeless medicine GP practice uh, called Homeless Healthcare and that's been going for around 10 years in Perth and is well known and trusted by the rough sleeping population. And that practice, that GP practice, has has always held the philosophy of going to where homeless people are rather than uh, settling into one place and saying, if you want to see us, you have to come to us. So there were already uh, clinics of street health, uh, in homeless drop-in centres, in uh, transitional accommodations, domestic violence shelters, drug and alcohol facilities. And what's happened is then that mental health response has been dropped into that to become part of those. So the, uh, the HODS team may go out on the streets to see people. Uh, they have clinics in the homeless drop-in centres and their job is to be there as part of the whole team. So they, don't, so they operate within the, the whole of the homeless healthcare team because in some cases their expertise is needed, for example, for, for very complex social, uh, very complex uh, dual diagnosis issues. Other times they may be providing support to the GP because as most of your listeners will know, the general practice provides most of the mental health and alcohol and drug care in Australia. But when things are tough, it's extremely useful to have uh, specialists in that area assisting. Yeah, look, the, the, the mental health, um, acute mental health sector and even the community mental health sector has been under the pump for many years and we've had a Royal Commission um, over in these, I, I did that a National Royal Commission or was it just a Victorian one? But I think it was Victorian, yes. Yeah, yeah, Royal Commission into the effectiveness of the mental health service system. So in, implementing that into this team I think sounds like a wonderful initiative and I know some other homeless teams around the country are doing th similar things. But you've undertaken evaluation of this team. You've piloted how they operate. You've undertaken the evaluation. Can you maybe tell us what you've learned, what's effective, and what do you want to put in place going forward? Do you want to change anything, or has it worked just the way you thought? So I think it's it has worked. It has worked the way that uh, that we'd hoped and that we'd planned. And I think for anybody who's familiar with um, with the homelessness sectors, there won't be any surprises in what really works. I think the first thing is that the care that's provided needs to be individualised because each person has uh, a different background, a different illness uh, in terms of mental health, the substance abuse, what role does that play within their life and within their mental illness, um, also relating to some physical illness. And so it, it it's a matter of looking at what the individual patient um, needs to help them 
and bringing that together rather than having uh, each patient will get this specific set of services. So some patients might need lots of input for a short while, others will need uh, a sort of slow burn of, um, of intervention that go, needs to go over a long period of time. So that individualised approach is really important to get good results. And the second important thing is how important the social situation of the patient is because really you can't have good mental health unless you're housed. It's one of the bedrocks of, of, of being well. And the substance use problems that, uh, that these patients have are often improved or changed by being in stable housing. And so that's where your, your care continues to see what's happening uh, once people are housed. But really, it's incredibly important to, uh, to be linked with uh, community supports, community housing, caseworkers, because if you don't get the housing, you are going, you can help people, but you can't really make them well until until they're housed. And so that's where the the very tight integration between the HOD service, the homeless healthcare GP, and the community homelessness sector has been really effective. Great. So flexibility in research service response for the individual, what works best for them, making sure that you've got the other players. Uh, operating around, but also knowing that housing itself is not the, the answer. It is a combination of things, even though being housed is fundamental to someone's mental health. You do need those other bits, don't you? Absolutely. So it's a, it's about, I think it's about making sure that the focus on getting somebody housed is not lost in there, that you do need to do that. But you're absolutely correct. You need support to keep people in the housing. Uh, you need to have the right housing for that person, be it supported, yep. be it um, clustered, be it uh, individual, and you need to have long-term GP care because mm -hmm. the health, which is mental health, physical health, uh, depends on, on having a relationship with a doctor long-term who that person can learn to trust. Mm. So Amanda, I've been really looking forward to asking the next question of you, particularly because you're a frontline um, clinician in ED and you've had you spend a lot of time working with, half your time normally is working with the homeless population. But from a, from a clinician, an ED clinician's perspective, during this COVID-19 epidemic, um, there's been a lot of planning and a lot of preparing. I, I suppose what the, the way I wanted to ask this question is about how do you think COVID-19 is going to change our practice in the long term about how the health services respond to homeless people? Do you think there'll be a permanent change in how we do business? I'm not sure about that. So I think, um, and that's probably related to the fact that we don't have a lot of COVID so far in our community. So I think there's a lot of, there certainly was a lot of interest uh, when there was the prospect of there being a lot of COVID going through the community and the particular vulnerability of certain groups like the elderly, but also the street homeless population, the homeless population in terms of living in severely overcrowded dwellings, couch surfing, etc. And I think the, 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 certainly in Western Australia, things started well with, uh, with plans to change the way that homeless services were, uh, were distributed and trying to get places of protection and places for care of people um, who were homeless. What, so I think it, did, it has highlighted to the government, the health and the housing sector, how 
higher health risk this uh, the rough sleeping population particularly has. However, I think that because we haven't got a lot of COVID, there's been a bit of a bit of pulling back um, mm -hmm. because it looks like we're going to start loosening things like social distancing and that we may not have a huge number of COVID patients, um, particularly if we keep our borders closed. So I'm not sure whether whether we are going to get any long-term changes, uh, although what I would hope is that the health system particularly recognises that the looking at the social determinants of health of patients in their hospitals particularly, it's a lot cheaper to fix the social determinants such as unstable housing rather than try and treat the consequences of that in health with a medical model. So I see a lot of that in the hospital. Absolutely. Not dealing with, yeah. with the basics of why these people are getting sick, staying sick, uh, coming back mm. all the time where the intervention, for example, um, housing supports is actually a lot cheaper because a hospital bed is very expensive. In WA, at my hospital, it's $2,909 per night for an inpatient bed. Wow. Contrast that with a weekly average rent for a one-bedroom flat, which is $300 a week. There's a lot yep. of savings to be made. Yeah, hospitals are very... <laughs> Sorry, keep going. Yeah, so, there's a, so I think if we can get through to government, and we've been trying to do this, that if we put a bit, put more money into the social determinants of health, we would save a lot of money in the health system. And the other thing is that these people would be have much, much better health as well. So there's a mm -hmm. good a good outcome for uh, the the rough sleeping population, but there's also a good outcome economically for the uh, for the hospital system. Absolutely, a hospital is a very expensive hotel room, um, but it's uh, and, it, and usually when people are there, it's not much fun anyway. So it'd be a lot better, as you say, to get them housed. It's a strange thing that because there's a good, strong economic argument for this, um, but there's always a lack of willingness for some reason. But during COVID, we've seen governments respond with a lot of housing, so we'll see. Yeah, I think one of the difficulties is uh, is that within when you're looking at the cost savings, the uh, government departments that you're asking to make the effort, for example, to house people, such as the Department of Housing or Department of Communities, is different from the uh, government departments that benefit from that, which are the Department of Health and also mm -hmm. corrections. So prisons um, see a marked decrease if many of many rough sleepers were housed and supported. So it's that difficulty of shifting the money around because one is spending it and the other is saving it. Um, so it requires over, a very high level government yeah, to, right. to coordinate that. Overall, it's a benefit for all of us if we could get it right. Yes. And for the and for the people that we're talking about, it'd be a lot, life would be a lot better for them and for our community. Well, look, thanks, Amanda. Look, we're coming to the end of our chat. I I, I did I, I've been asking everyone on this series, uh, you know, the, the inspiring question: um, what story or person or encounter have you had that keeps inspiring you to keep coming back and making a difference? And you've been making a difference in this area for a long time. What what keeps you going? I think it's. Part of it is a sense of, of social injustice that um, I see the hospital side spending unlimited money on people for their illnesses 
and so little money being available to help uh, the homeless population uh, with fundamental social problems. When I see, so so sometimes I do get quite uh, quite disheartened by it. But then there are there are always those stories where somebody's life is completely transformed by the help that's given by the homeless team, and our team really celebrates those. Uh, and we've had some very complex, very uh, really challenging patients with many many physical substance use, mental health problems, who when through the efforts of the team, they've managed to get them into the right sort of accommodation. That person just thrives, and the nicest thing that happens is they stop coming to hospital, and which is a cry for help. And we start hearing stories about how well they're doing from the people who are working with them in the community, and that is a source of immense pride. I just wish that we could do it for more people, uh, and that's that's the eternal challenge: is to um, is is to really significantly decrease the number of rough sleepers such that they are where they should be. Fantastic. Thanks, Amanda. That's a, a wonderful way to end. And it's been a pleasure talking to you as always. Thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me. To subscribe to a printed copy of Parity Magazine, visit chp.org.au forward slash parity. This podcast series has been developed by St Vincent's Health Australia. For more information about St Vincent's, visit www.svha.org.au. The music track for this podcast is called Slow Burn by Kevin MacLeod, host of incompetech.filmmusic.io and is licensed under the Creative Commons 4.0 by Attributions Licence. This information, information about our guests and more can be found in the text under the podcast description. Thanks for listening.